If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. We are almost through. And so, Lord willing, next week we're going to finish the book of Hebrews. We're going to conclude next week. And then we're going to, this summer, the plan is to preach through some of the Psalms. And so so that's going to be the plan for the summer, uh, looking at kind of the the Christian life in the Psalms, looking at the emotions and the character of God, just just looking at, at the Psalms. Uh, and then, Lord willing, in September, uh, the plan is to preach through the book of Daniel. So, so Lord willing, in September, we'll start uh, a study through the book of Daniel. So you can start buying your books and commentaries and study now. We're going to be going through the book of Daniel, uh, Lord willing, in the fall. But like I said, before we get there, we do have more to say about Hebrews. So this morning, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 13. And last week, we stopped in, in verse 6. So we're going to pick up in verse 7, and we're going to run through... Verse 17, so, so Hebrews 13, 7 through 17, uh, the title is Leaders, Christ, and the Christian Life, and, and you'll see that in our outline in just a second. But let me read the passage and pray for us, and then we will, we will look and study this passage. So Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the camp in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, that is Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you." Let me pray for us, and and then we'll work through these these verses. Father, what hope we do have just just in what Jesus has done for us. Uh, We once were not your people, but as a result of of what Christ has done for us, we are now your people. And so we gather with great hope, knowing that that nothing shall ever separate us from your love that's been shown to us in Christ Jesus. May our theme always be more of Jesus, all of Jesus, nothing but Jesus, Jesus. And so I pray as we, as we study this, that, that we would see the Christ-centered lives that we're all called to live. And so would you help us through the study of your word? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, here we go. We're, we're, there's, there's three points here that, that kind of make our outline. Again, we're at the end. This, this last chapter, it's kind of a, a barrage of exhortations. And, and so you see, it's kind of scattered, but, but I think I've put it together okay um, to, to help us get through it. So we, we're going to see first leaders. So, so he's going to make remarks about leaders there in verses 7 and 8, and then verse 17. 
And then second, we'll see the second point, and we'll see his focus on Christ and, and his role in the new covenant, and that's in verses 9 through 12. And then finally, he'll have some final closing exhortations on the Christian life, which are verses 13 through 16. Really, it's part in verse 17, but, but that's kind of our outline. Those are the three points that we're going to work through. Leaders, Christ, the Christian life. Now you can tell where the title came from. That, that's the outline. So let's look there first, verses 7 and 8, and then verse 17. So, so as we see this, if you notice in verse 7, it says, remember your leaders. And then in verse 17, it says, obey your leaders. And so at the outset, there are two groups of leaders that he's focusing on here. So two sets. And so verse 7, there's, there's the first set. He says, remember your leaders. This first set are leaders that are no longer with them. So, so remember those, that maybe they've died, maybe they were, they were persecuted and martyred, but they're the leaders that are no longer with them. That's the group that he's focused on in verse 7. And then verse 17, the call is not remember, but obey. So verse 17 is the second group of leaders, which are those who are currently leading the people. Okay, so, so there's the two groups. And so from the, these two passages, from these two verses, we see a little bit about what, what leaders are to do in leading the church. There's some implications on the relationship between the leaders and those under their care. Now, now who are these leaders? The word leaders seems to be general, uh, but, but in the context, especially in verse 17, the leaders here are to be understood as elders and overseers. Okay, that, that's the point. These are, these are the, the leaders of the church, the, those who are leading and teaching and preaching and shepherding the congregation. So, so verse 7, the, the ones that they're remembering, may, maybe those were the, the first missionaries or church planters. Maybe that's who they are. Maybe they were the, the first people that shared the gospel with this, this group of Christians. Nevertheless, the point is that this first group of leaders are the qualified men who have been and who are shepherding the church. And so, so remember those who first preached the gospel to you and led you. Maybe those who, who led the, the first days of this church. And so, so notice the relationship. Remember your leaders. So, so what about the leaders in verse 7? Remember those who spoke to you the word of God. Right? So, so that's the first thing. We, we, we see that leaders speak. Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. This tells us that, that, that leaders, the shepherds, the pastors, are called to speak. To speak the word of God. This is the first function of a Christian pastor. To speak God's word. Not my word. Not someone else's word, but God's word. That, that's leaders speak. It happens through things like this, like sermons, through conversations with you, phone calls, through Bible studies. Leaders must be those who speak the word of God. I don't have an agenda, right? My agenda is to speak God's word to you, his people. And so in the context here in the, the book of Hebrews, these leaders are most likely the ones who initially spoke the gospel to their readers, the ones who, who showed up on a ship and said, hey, let me tell you the good news, or those who rode into town and said, let me tell you about the, the crucified Messiah, that those who first brought the gospel to these Christians, which means that the call to remember is to remember the beginning, remember those who, who started your gospel journey, that remember those whose beautiful feet brought you the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Remember them. But not just remember them, it's remember their teaching. Remember what they said. Remember the gospel they first preached to you. The crisis that they're in at this moment, it was going to be remedied by remembering the gospel that these first leaders taught. He's saying, remember. Remember what you first heard. What you're hearing now is not in accordance. So remember those leaders and what they taught. But it's not just their words. Notice they're also to, to consider and imitate their way of life, to imitate their faith. And so leaders speak, yes, but second, leaders live. 
Leaders live lives of example. Not only is teaching and speaking necessary, but, but living a life of godliness before others is also necessary for the Christian leader. He, he says, consider the outcome of their way of life. He's referring to their death. That, that's why well, another reason why we think they're not with them anymore. Specifically, he's referring to leaders who, who persevered till the end. So remember their way of life that led them to, to close their eyes in faith. Which is part of the theme. Remember, all of chapter 11 was, was the imitators, the, the imitators of the faithful that have gone before us. But it's not just the hall of faith. It, it's leaders that they actually knew and talked with. It's not just Abraham and Moses. But, but remember the leaders who, who were first with you. They persevered to the end. So, so imitate them. They finished the race. And, and so the author of Hebrews is calling them, remember. Remember them. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. These leaders... In the life of this, this local church, was, was they were God's gift to the Christians, to the body. They functioned as leaders as, and as examples. The Christian leader has to be imitatable. The, the, the people must see and live and, and do life with their leaders so that they can imitate them. I mean, I thought about pastors I've known who have died in the faith. Those, those that have paved the way, those that, that I never knew personally, those I have known personally. And, I, and the context here is pastors, elders, who, who, have, who have set the example. But, but I think setting an example, we ought to recognize it's not unique to Christian leaders. It's something that every Christian is called to do. If you're here and you're a Christian, you are called to set an example that others might imitate. I mean, I thought about since the last time we were in this room, we have lost some faithful church members. Some that have died in the faith. And, and so we ought to remember them. Remember how they, they fought the, the, the fight of faith until the end, whatever the circumstances were. They've been examples. They've left us an example of persevering to the end. So they're to be remembered, to be imitated. I mean, think about, if you're a Christian, think about who first preached the gospel to you. Where, where did you hear the good news? Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe you grew up going to church as a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was your parent. Maybe it was your grandparent. Maybe it was your neighbor. Someone down the street who, who just took an interest in you. And we ought to remember those that God used in our lives to start us on this journey. We, we don't just automatically hear the gospel. We, we're told it by someone. And so think about it. Give thanks to God for those that he used in your life, whoever it was. Remembering them ought to aid us in our perseverance. I mean, that's how, that's how this is functioning here in the book of Hebrews. Remember their way of faith and imitate. And so when you're discouraged, you're like, I can't hold on. Remember those who have gone before. And so to remember those who have, imitated, who have left examples for us, but, but also we ought to think about our own lives. One day we're all going to be dead and gone. That ought not to be news to you. What will be rememberable about you? I mean, that's a worthwhile question. I mean, that, that's kind of a, a piercing question. I ought to be asking, but not just me, not just Will, but, but all of us as, as a parent, as a grandparent, as a great-grandparent, as a, a co-worker, a neighbor, what example is your life leaving? What would it look like if, if everyone that knew you were a Christian, that, everyone that was a Christian that knew you were a Christian, if they imitated your faith, what, what would the world look like? Is your faith, is your life imitatable? Right? This is the pattern. Christians set examples for other Christians and, and pave the way. And so we ought to live lives by God's grace, not perfect lives, but lives that, that are faithful and persevere to the end. But, but the last thing we see of the leaders here, they speak, they live, but they also point to Jesus. So look at, at verse 8. He transitions to verse 8. Notice what he says. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Now, now it seems kind of out of the blue. Where does that come from? Is he just, just going through another list, another bullet point? I don't think so. And I think it's very significant why he says that here. Now, the one thing just to recognize is that this is a significant theological statement, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This means Jesus, Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the same as God the Father. So, so the one God shares a name. Jesus is of the same essence as the Lord himself. So he doesn't change. I mean, that, that's significant. Je- so, so human nature, we change. Right? Some of you have been living with your spouses for decades. They've changed. You've changed. People change. Kids grow up. Personalities change. But Jesus never changes. Which can only mean that, that Jesus is of the same nature and essence of God himself. Jesus isn't part God. Jesus isn't less than God. Jesus isn't anything less than fully God, of the very same essence as God the Father and God the Spirit. If you remember back in Hebrews chapter 1, we, we learn that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. You, you can't say it more clearly than that. Jesus is equal with God. He is God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. So that's one thing. It's a theological truth. But, but the other thing is, if for this, in this context, the, the leaders of the past, they're still significant and relevant even though they're dead. Why? Because the leaders of the past, their goal was to point to Jesus. Right? So if they were pointing to Jesus, then there's still relevance to their example. Because Jesus is the same. So, so the example of others who pointed you to Jesus, you can still look at their example if it pointed you to Jesus because Jesus is still the same. Jesus doesn't go away with the leaders. So their example is still relevant because their example pointed to Jesus. Jesus is the same. He doesn't change. And so it, it won't do for the readers to say, well, well, those were different circumstances. That was a different time. Those leaders, like they lived in the good old days. They have, they have no example, nothing to say for us today. His point is that that won't do because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if they pointed you to Jesus and he was enough for them, he is enough for you now. And so remember them to the extent that they pointed you to Jesus. And so remembering is beneficial because their leaders pointed them to the unchanging Christ. And so leaders ought to point to Jesus, every Christian leader, every Christian for that matter, who lives a life of faithfulness and perseveres as an example, sets it sets an example that, w- that they're following an example that has been set by Christ. And so Christian leaders point to Jesus. This is one thing I always, always want you to know is that don't put your trust in a man. Never put your trust in me. I will fail you. By God's grace, hopefully it won't be a, a, a huge failure, but I'm a, I'm a man like you. And if, you, if your faith is wrapped up in me, that is not a sure f- place for your faith. But Jesus is a sure place. He will never let you down. He will never forsake you. He will never change. He is faithful. And so to the extent that my example points you to Jesus, follow me. To the extent that it leads you away from Jesus, don't follow me. So leaders point to Jesus. Then the final thing we see about leaders here is that leaders shepherd with joy. This we see from verse 17. So you see verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, now that'll, we'll address that in the very final section, but here, obey and submit to your leaders. Why? Notice verse 17, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. And so leaders are shepherds called to shepherd the souls of under their care, of those under their care, because 
pastors are going to give an account for those souls that were under their care. I mean, you guys are lucky, right? Do you hear what, what the responsibility of the pastor is? So, so I will stand before the Lord and he'll say, those souls under your care, how did you shepherd them? I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll have to stand and give an account. This is why church membership is a big deal. I need to know who I'm responsible for. I can't be responsible for every Christian in the city of Hampton. I can't be responsible for every Christian in the, in the neighborhood of Fox Hill. I'm responsible for the Christians who say, we want to follow you, we want you to lead us, we want to be part of this church. And so elders, pastors, are given the responsibility for shepherding souls, for caring for the spiritual well-being of their flock. Now that's one thing, but, but it goes even further. Not only that, they are called to shepherd with joy and not with growing, groaning. Shepherds are to shepherd with joy and not with groaning. Now, now as you'll, you'll see, part of that is on you, right? So if you've got a groaning pastor, you need to examine yourself. But shepherds are to shepherd with joy, and, and that ought to be the main perspective of a Christian pastor. That's not to say that groaning or discouragement or frustration are never present, but it is to say that a pastor who doesn't find joy that's sustained in shepherding a pastor who's always grumbling or complaining about his people or his church, that's a pastor who probably shouldn't be a pastor. Pastors are called to shepherd with joy. And honestly, this is why I'm always quick whenever any of you call or stop by or, or talk to me and you say, you, some of you just, you, second nature, you just do, I, I'm sorry to bother you. Now, I know you're busy, but, I, I'm sorry, but, so you start a conversation that way. Whenever I hear that, hopefully you've heard me say this, hopefully you'll continue to hear me say this, I'm always going to say, it's not a problem. You're not a hindrance. I, I'm called to shepherd you, and in fact, it's a joy to care for you. And so when you come to me with your problems, you're not hindering me. You're actually helping me fulfill my calling and, and feel, fulfill my joy. It's not a bother. You're not a problem. Don't be sorry. And I say that genuinely because, yes, I get busy. Yes, I have four young kids, and I, I get tired. I get overwhelmed. I get sad and discouraged. Those things happen. Those, are, those emotions Will and I experience, but we can honestly say that we genuinely find joy in shepherding you. And when you say, well, I'm not going to bother pastor, right? You're robbing me and Will of, of, of joyful service to the body. And so I, I, I want the office phone to ring off the hook this week. Bring me your problems. Right? It's a joy. And the day that my joy is gone permanently and, and not showing its head anymore, the day that that happens is the day I find a new job. Because if a, a shepherd can't shepherd with joy, he has no business shepherding because sheep get harmed by men who aren't called to shepherd and don't do it with joy. Well, after verse 8, we move to our second point, Christ. So after this mention of Christ's unchanging nature, the author then, author then shifts to discuss some, some specific issues regarding Jesus and the central role that he's played specifically in the New Covenant. So look there at verse 9 through 12. We see the focus on Christ. Verse 9, Do not be led astray, by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not foods, which have no benefit for those devoted to them. So, so as one commentator put it, the, the constancy of Jesus Christ, who never changes, should in itself put the readers on guard against innovative and new strange teachings by which they'll be carried away from Jesus. That's the whole point. Jesus is central. 
And so we don't know the specifics of, of this, this context here in Hebrews, but in some form or fashion, it was being communicated through these diverse and strange teachings, this, this new teaching that, that ceremonial foods, physical food that had been used in, in sacrifices or these ritualistic practices, probably these Old Testament practices, this food it was being taught was good for the spiritual well-being of the Christian. So they're saying, eat this special meat, eat this special food because it's going to nourish you and make you spiritually healthy. And the author wants his readers to know that, that these new teachings go against the gospel. They go against the good news of Jesus Christ that they had received from their first leaders. And quite emphatically, he wants them to know it's grace that strengthens the, strengthens the Christian, not food. Christians need grace, not food. Now, we need food, but for our spiritual well-being, we need grace and nothing but grace. There's no spiritual benefit from eating ceremonial foods, special foods. There's no reason for these Christians to follow these strange and diverse teachings. There's no reason because all they need is in the never-changing Jesus Christ and his gospel. And so all these kinds of diverse, strange teachings, he says, he contrasts them with the singular character of God's word that centers on the singular person of Jesus Christ, which, as he said, remains the same. There's no need for new teachings. We have received all that we need in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is the God of all grace, and there's no grace outside of Jesus Christ. In him and in his gospel, we have all that we need. And so he continues to make this point by focusing on the new covenant. Look at verse 10. He, he transitions quickly into this new covenant language. So he says, we, talking about Christians, him and the Christians, have an altar which is a reference to a heavenly altar. It's not, not a physical altar. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. And so there's this contrast. We have this altar. They have that altar. And the contrast is between new covenant members and those still serving under the old covenant. His point is that new covenant members have access to something the old covenant members had no access to. They had no right to. And that access is to Christ himself and the sacrifice of Jesus himself. That's the gospel. And so those who are still at the tent are neglecting the, the new covenant sacrifice that has been made in Jesus Christ. And so they have no right to anything. It's Jesus and the new covenant that we have access to God himself. So this old way has no way of providing what Jesus provides. He continues, verse 11, the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so again, he, he spent a lot of time on the Old Covenant, but, but basically he's reminding them this high priest under this Old Covenant would bring blood into the holy place and, and he would be able to enter in and, and this blood was special. So they'd, they'd take the blood from the animal that was sacrificed. So the blood would enter into the Holy of Holies, but, but the body of the animal wouldn't. That, that would say there's no, place, there's no place for that in this holy place. Take that outside the camp. That, that's defiled, that's discarded, that's rejected. Take that body far out of Jerusalem. We don't need it in the temple. That's what the Old Covenant, that, that's how access to God was, was regulated. And the author says, that's not how it is now. Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. So similarity, Jesus suffered outside the gate. So just like those old bodies that were taken and their blood went into the Holy Holies, but their bodies were, were discarded outside the gate. So Jesus went outside the gate. He was crucified outside of Jerusalem. Do you, that, that's not a coincidence. That, that's not a minor aspect of the crucifixion. He was led away from Jerusalem to Golgotha. 
He was crucified outside the city, and, and the, the criminals were, were crucified outside of the city because that was a declaration that they are outcasts. They are not welcome in here. That they are rejected. They have no place among the people in the city. They are outside the city, and that's what Jesus experienced. And in, in fact, the leaders believed that exact thing regarding Jesus. He has no place. He's an outcast. He's an idolater, blasphemer. He deserves death. And so Jesus suffered outside the gate. So there's a similarity, similarity between Jesus suffering outside the gate and then the bodies of the sacrifice. But here's the difference. We can't miss this here in verse 12. Whereas the old covenant sacrifices were made year after year after year because they couldn't fully cleanse, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross completely sanctifies his people. So, notice, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Why? In order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So Jesus' death did what no other death could do. His death completely sanctifies his people. It's a once-for-all sacrifice. That's why in the New Covenant there's one sacrifice. We, we, we don't sacrifice Jesus again and again and again. He was sacrificed once, and we remember it again and again and again, but he died once, and that was enough. It's a once-for-all sacrifice. Grace and forgiveness and full cleansing has come through the one death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Which then leads to the final section there of our passage, verses 13 through 16, in the Christian life. And the call to go to him. So look there at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him. Who's the him? That's Jesus. And where are we to go to him? Outside the camp. And bear the reproach that he endured. Remember, he, he suffered outside the camp. So let's go to him. His point is simple. Therefore, since Jesus was crucified outside the gate as one rejected and separated from the holy places of the Old Covenant, author says, let us go with him. Let us go with him outside the camp. The, the implications are clear for the readers. Leave the Old Covenant. You have no place in that city anymore. There, there's no use for those regulations and rituals anymore. Leave the Old Covenant. Leave. Get out of Jerusalem. Go outside the gate. Identify with Christ who actually died outside the gate. Go identify with him and take whatever comes. You see, these Christians, they're facing pressure or persecution. And this, this pressure was coming from when, when the public was recognizing them as Jesus followers, as new covenant believers, they were being pressured to forsake Jesus. We don't know what it looked like, but regardless of the specifics, the point the author is making is don't do that. Don't forsake Jesus. Don't leave him. Don't abandon him. You must continue to identify with him, and it's going to require your perseverance in the face of pressure and persecution. And his point, when he says, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Was Jesus reproached? Of course he was. Are his followers to expect much different? No. But his followers go gladly with him because they're following his example. Identifying with Christ, bearing the name of Christ, requires bearing reproach. He was crucified outside the gate. He paved the way, and we must follow. And brother and sister, that way is going to be more and more treacherous as time presses on, it seems. But we must not forsake Christ. We must not abandon Christ. The cost, what is lost as a result of going outside the city to Christ, so you leave behind the, the old covenant, you leave behind the, the, the city, the earthly city, what is gained is Jesus in the new city. Look at verse 14. It doesn't matter that we're leaving. So, so maybe you have memories of, oh, look at the old covenant, look at all God's promises to, to Israel and, and Jerusalem. He says, verse 13, here we have no lasting city. 
We seek the city that's to come. In essence, he says, let us go out to Christ and bear the reproach of this world because here we have no lasting city. In fact, that was the case for Abraham and his offspring. They were looking forward to a city and it wasn't Canaan. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. And the author wants us to know that we, like them, have no lasting city here and now. We too are looking for a heavenly city that is to come. I mean, it, it would... It would not be a bad idea to put Hebrews 13, verse 14 on a card and put it in front of your eyes every day. Here we have no lasting city. Here we have no lasting city. Here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that's to come. The Christian perspective is a forward-looking perspective. We're never going to have heaven on earth. That's why we started with a call to worship and don't put your trust in princes in whom there is no salvation. Brother and sister, I don't care how good you think it can get or how bad you think it's going to get. Either way, it's not here. This is not it. It doesn't matter how good you think things can get here. Here we have no lasting city. If your hope is on a four-year cycle, it, we, we're finally going to get it right right? You're going to be let down always. Here we have no lasting city. If you think, oh, it, we're going to hell in a handbasket because of things that are happening. Here we have no lasting city. doesn't matter whether you think it's good or bad. What's your hope can't be here. The Christian, we seek the city that's to come. I've been reminded of that very, very emphatically the past couple weeks and months. I mean, what, what a blessing to be in a church where we have older saints who, who have left this city in our lifetimes, in the past year. That's a reminder, we're not living for here. We're, we're all going to fall. We're all going to fade away. Here we have no lasting city, but, but, but that's okay because there's a city that's to come. That, that's the faith perspective of the Christian. We, we are going to come to a heavenly city that will not be shaken that will be eternal. We don't have an enduring city here on earth, so we've got to stop living like this is it, because this isn't it. It is a promised future dwelling, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so the passage ends there in verses 15 and 16 with two kind of closing exhortations. And so as he's on this theme of, of worship and new covenant sacrifice, he, he just says, hey, here's what real sacrifice looks like. It's not in the temple but it's your life. So verse 15, through him then, that's through Jesus, through this new covenant relationship with God that we have through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And so his point isn't that the new covenant doesn't entail sacrifices. It does. It's just the new covenant sacrifices, sacrifices of believers themselves. Through Jesus, we offer ourselves. And the call is to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. Let us, having been reconciled to God through Jesus, offer up continual praise, continual thankfulness, recognizing our state in the new covenant is all of God's doing. So we never have reason not to praise. And this praise, he further clarifies, is a public acknowledgement of his name. And that, that, that's what he put, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Those who have been brought near to God through Jesus Christ are not ashamed of being publicly identified with Christ. That's his point. 
You can't be ashamed of him. You publicly say, this is who I am. All I have is Jesus. And you can do whatever you want to me, but you're not going to take Jesus from me. And so, so the author wants him to know you, in holding fast to Christ, you, you praise God. You offer continual praise and you say, I, I publicly affirm my faith in Jesus. I'm not afraid or ashamed. I'm, I'm faithful to my profession. I don't fall away. And then second, verse 16, don't neglect to, new, to, to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And so again, these are sacrifices. They have nothing to do with animals or rituals in the temple. They are spiritual sacrifices made by every Christian. Don't neglect to do good. Share what you have. That, that's, that's elementary, isn't it? Do good and share. Right? How many times do we say that around our house or in the nursery? Do good and share. Christians, we need to do those things also. Do good and share. And, and in fact, the, the purpose of the Christian life, it, we, we find purpose and we find fulfillment in, in looking outside of ourselves and caring for others. That's what we do. We do good to others and we share what we have. We love God and we love others. And so this is how we offer sacrifices to the Lord. It is our very lives that we give for the good of others. And then the final point about the, the life of the Christian, jumping down to verse 17, what we, we picked up earlier, but this is where we'll end. The last aspect of the Christian life to recognize is the relationship between Christians and their leaders. So verse 17 we saw leaders are responsible for shepherding with joy, and right, as those who will give an account. But that verse also places the responsibility upon the Christian. Obey your leaders and submit to them. And so the call is for Christians to follow the God-appointed leadership of their church. And that's it. You can't take that another way. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now we have to quickly affirm that the leadership is a reference to, to, to the, the, the leaders who are leading in accordance with what he said in the book of Hebrews. And, and so the, the Christian leaders, he's saying, follow and submit to them. They're not leading away from Christ. They're, they're not forsaking the gospel. They're leading and living and teaching in accordance with the gospel that these, these Christians have heard. And so, so, and so far as Christian leaders are, are leading you to embrace Christ and in accordance with the gospel, in accordance with God's word, as long as that's the case, obedience and submission is the proper response of the Christian to their leaders. That's it. Christians follow their leaders. And that's the ideal. That, that's the dynamic. Leaders are following, pointing to Jesus, faithful, and, and members are following. And, and it works well together. That's the dynamic. But we can't miss the fact that the joy of the leaders is directly tied to the obedience and the submission of those under their care. Christians should submit to their leaders as their leaders are faithful to the gospel. When believers stay true to the gospel, leaders are full of joy. And if they turn away, then leaders are going to be grieved. And so as, as, as far as leaders are leading you to embrace Christ, you follow them. Instead of working against them, the members of the congregation are to yield to their leaders so that their ministry may be carried out with joy. When members of the church fail to submit themselves to leadership, the leaders end up working under an emotional burden that gives them life filled with sighs. Such a condition is of no advantage to the congregation since ministry is diminished by undue emotional stress. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That's the call. I mean, I thought about this example. Maybe it's helpful, maybe it's not, but I thought about envision every local church as, as a ship or a boat, right? A, a, maybe an air force or an aircraft carrier, maybe the larger churches need to be a bigger image. But, but anyways, we're, we're, a, we're a, 
a, a ship crossing a wide river, and salvation is on the other side. And so, so Jesus is the ship, and so the leaders say, hey, come to Jesus, get in the ship, we're going. We're going to persevere, we're getting to the end, and, and as long as we stay in the ship, we're, we're crossing the river. We're, we're going to keep paddling, we're going to keep you know, filling up with gas, doing whatever we're doing, we're, we're getting across the river. And so Will and I, as, as leaders, we've, we've been charged, pastors, care for those under your leadership and, and get them across the river. Whatever it takes, get them across the river. Pastor, you're going to be responsible for anyone that jumps out and doesn't make it to the other side. And so, so that's, kind of, that's kind of what we're wrestling with. And so in our endeavor to care for you, week after week after week, all we're saying is, hey, stay in the ship. Jesus is where it's at. Hold fast to him. Don't jump ship. Don't stop gathering. Don't test your swimming skills. Now's not the time. Stay in the ship. You are safe as long as you're in the ship. And as long as we're continually making the trip all about the ship and the other side, you ought to listen to us and follow us and say, yeah, yeah, we're staying in the ship. We, we don't want to fall away. The ship we're leading is going where you want to go. Right? So, so if you're on this ship with us, stay on the ship and let us lead this ship. If you want to jump ship, you better have good reason to jump ship. Which, let me just say, I recognize it's possible for people to want to jump ship for reasons other than forsaking Jesus. Okay, so, so, so I recognize that. I recognize it's possible for, for church members who, who may want to leave this church and join another one. I get that. That's possible. That's allowed. You're allowed to do that. I get that. However, when that's what you want to do... I would be a bad leader if I didn't want to sit down and talk with you about your decision. Right? If I just said, oh, they jumped ship. Oh, so glad they're gone. Right? If I did that, that is not a good leader. And so when you're jumping ship, I better do my best to make sure you're getting on another ship that's going the same direction. Because more often than not, people jump ship just to fl- flounder and, and drown in the sea. And I can't do that. And so if you want to leave, you can leave. You know me. You know me. I will be sad. Most of you I'll be sad about. And I'm, I will be sad. If you want to leave, you are allowed to leave. But, but please, talk to Will and I about it. Because we're responsible for you. If you come and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking, I'm not going to chain you to the front door and say, sorry, you're not allowed to leave. No, I want you to follow Jesus. And if you can't do that here, I want you to go somewhere else to do it. But what I don't want you to do is to go somewhere else where you're not going to follow Jesus. Because I'm responsible for you getting to the other side. And so if you want to leave, let me just make one small request. Will and I are making this together. I'm speaking for him. We talked about this. If you want to leave, you're allowed to leave. But it's not unreasonable for your pastors to want to talk with you about why you're leaving. It's not crazy to think that you should be willing to sit down and talk with us about why you're leaving. We love you. We care about you. We will, we will bless you. I, we've already, I've already had conversations with members over the past year. I said, I, I don't agree with why you're going, but, but go. If God's leading you, go. That, that's going to be my inclination. And so the question is just for you to communicate with us if you're leaving. We want to know. We don't want you to leave, but we want you to leave if that's what's best. Because it's not about us. It's not about this building. It's not even about this sanctuary. It's about Jesus. And if you're going to follow him somewhere else, then that's what we want. We think you can do it here. We think this is a good place to do it. We want you to give us a shot and help us to grow. But, but if you want to leave, 
for us, caring for you might mean letting you go somewhere else, and we're, we're happy to do that because our concern is you getting to the other side. Well, let me, let me pray for us, and then we will we'll sing in response.